Well, today is the first Sunday of 2024, and it's the perfect time with the past year close behind us to look at God's continuous call for His church. And as we consider Redemption Hill, the love for one another is a blessing, and it's actually been witnessed by those outside of this congregational family. We've seen God bless in 2023. We've watched how God has grown our church both in maturity, but also in new faces, new relationships. We've seen that. But there's one potential danger with godly loving fellowship. And that potential danger is that it becomes easy to live only within the relationships that are grounded in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to just take this moment, this time, to really deal with this idea of witnessing joy, of living the gospel in 2024 and beyond. It's not a directional message that is like, hey, this is where we're going as Redemption Hill Church. It is a message that reminds us of our call as believers. It's a message to refocus us this year into what God has called us to be. It is that we would be witnessing joy. You see, Jesus' universal call for his church is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. God's called us to live in this world as his witnesses which means that we are to have relationship with those in our culture who have yet to believe on Jesus for their salvation. That is one of the primary calls, if not the sole call to which he calls us to, to both witness and disciple. That we ourselves are to be witness to and then to receive that discipleship, being trained up in the ways of the Lord, and we therefore are then to turn out and do the same. You see, God's called us to be to a witnessing lifestyle. A lifestyle which is one that's based on the truth and joy of the gospel and is expressed through our action and words. Our culture is polarizing, is it not? Our culture is polarizing by its very definition. Lots of argument, lots of disagreement. To think that this is something new is actually kind of wrong. The culture has always been at odds with the truth. Because anything that is not of God is at odds with the truth. And so we can see things, it's louder sometimes, and it's quieter other times, but the culture itself has always pressed against the kingdom of God. We have always seeked to find here what can only be found in Christ and the kingdom of God. That's the flesh. The flesh fries out for a kingdom now a kingdom which is rooted in him, or excuse me, rooted in our pleasure rather than in him. And so sometimes we can deceive ourselves into thinking that the best days are behind us or that in some way 
it's a whole lot worse. Years ago, I remember reading a quote. The quote spoke of the debased sexual immorality of the culture in the United States. And I read it, and my whole response to it was like, yeah, yes, I do see this. I see the promiscuity and sexual relationship going without any kind of commitment and this free love that was taking place. And as I listened to it, or excuse me, as I read it, I began going back, and I got I to see who wrote this. This is really good. Well, I was surprised to find that the author who wrote it and the date on the paper was 1948. You see, the world acts like the world. Nothing new under the sun. Sometimes it's louder, and sometimes it's quieter. But the world acts like the world. We're living in a time where it's loud right now. It loudly rejects and presses against the truth of God. And yet, God has called us to be his witnesses to this world in this culture. And it is easy when we begin to despise the culture to then despise the people. And yet God has called us to love them. God has called us to be his witnesses to them. And so in Philippians 2, let's read that together. The call here is for something different. The call to the Philippi church is something unique. So let's stand as we read this passage together. It's Philippians 2, verse 12 through 18. And this is what it says. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that the day of Christ I may be proud that I not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if, I'm proud, excuse me, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. At the center of this passage is the idea that the world sees and hears God's gospel through the joy-filled living witness of his people. The world sees and hears God's gospel through the joy-filled living witness of his people. The gospel is a joy-centered, joy-filled witness that's what he's called us to be, gospel witnesses who are marked by his joy. And that's what Paul is reminding the church of Philippi with. You see, the book of Philippians is written to the church in Philippi, a group of gathering believers. He's just shared with them in verses 1 through 5 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so then it brings us to our passage in verse 12 where he says, therefore. So he's just laid out that we are to have the mind of Christ. That Christ himself did not think of others, excuse me, did not think of himself first, but put others first. He thought of others' interests before his own. And he explains there in the next few verses how he does that, that he lays his life down for us, that he gives it up through the cross, the rightful penalty of our sin, death, he takes upon himself. We're told that he humbles himself, that he steps off his throne and humbles himself for our sake, taking on our rightful punishment, death, and overcoming the power of that death through the resurrection, providing salvation to all those who repent and believe on him. And then he says, therefore. So don't think of yourselves first, but think of Christ. Have Christ's mind in these things. That's what he's saying. Now Paul begins by affirming their faithfulness. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, He's acknowledging that they're faithful followers of Christ. But he's reminding them of something that would become a temptation for them to lose their joy, to lose their witness. See, Paul affirms their faithfulness, but then he moves to an exhortation and reminds them in verse 16 that they are children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. A flashlight does very little in a closet if the room is dark. God has asked you to step out of the closet and I'm not talking about the terminology that we use today. But I guess maybe in some ways I am. If your faith is hidden, what he's saying is, come out of the dark. Come out where your light can be seen. Stop hiding your light. You are a witness in a crooked and twisted generation. That's what he's saying. That word crooked is actually the word scolios. So when we think of scoliosis, right, scoliosis, it's a curvature of the spine. He's saying that the, the generation is crooked, it's curved, it's twisted. It's bent, it's not aligned correctly. But you're the light. You're the one that shines the path to the straight road. That's what he's saying to believers. And I want us to grab this this morning. 
That is, the culture becomes more loud in its debaseness. Our tendency as followers of Christ is to go more inward to the body of Jesus, which is not necessarily a bad thing. We should be equipped and encouraged with one another. But we should be equipped and encouraged so that we then go out into the world, into the harvest, into the fields, And we live in the midst of that crooked and twisted generation being strengthened and built up by other believers, but shining light in relationship with those who have yet to believe. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never believed on him for your salvation, I want to encourage you with this. You may see Christians doing other things. And what I want to encourage you with is this. Christ's instruction is for the believer to walk in joy, to actually witness their faith through joy. And I want to share with you that we are all guilty of failing to do that. But God is not. Jesus did it perfectly. And he loves you, and he desires that his church would be the joyful witness that you see. And my hope is that what you see in those in redemption, at redemption, is a joyful witness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For those who believe, may that be our heart this morning, is that our desire is to actually have a lifestyle witness of joy before others. This is not manufactured, not something that we just go around and have positive things to say. It's not some positive manifestation It's the inner peace of Jesus and the hope of his salvation driving us to be the witness that God desires in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. See, their joy is not only to be expressed within the church to other believers, but to those within our culture, a culture which is counter to the hope and salvation found in Christ. His call is to a lifestyle, not an event. You see, for many of us, when we think of witnessing, we think of it as an event, right? I mean, think about how we approach it. And I'm guilty of this. God, just give me the strength to get through this. Just, just help me get through this. Just give me the right words to say and just get me through this so that at the end of the day, I just, I'm not criticized. I'm not ridiculed. I still got a relationship with them when we're done, right? Think about how we approach it. We approach it as an event, something to be accomplished rather than something to be. What if I approached it and I listened and I approach it with, you know what? I get to share the gospel. You know, when we find cure to diseases, there are doctors running down the hallways to get it in the hands of people. And they're never apologetic about it. They're never apologetic. One of the things Elisa said after this 17-hour open-heart surgery, when she talked to the doctor at midnight, the surgeon who did the surgery, she said it was weird. He was all pumped up. It was like he was excited. I mean, yeah, can you imagine doing that for 17 hours and you feel like success and you got it? You're like pumped up. Man, I just did that. Do we approach the gospel and our witness that same way? Lord God, I'm excited to be your servant. 
Oh yeah, it's challenging, but I can't wait to see you show up for this. I can't wait to see you work. And so joyfully witnessing the gospel as a lifestyle rather than an event begins by three things. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 12 through 13 says, So now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It begins by pursuing your salvation in Christ diligently with awe. Pursuing your salvation in Christ diligently with awe. He says, so now not only in my present, but much more in my absence. Our faith has to be one that is our own. It is easy for us to lose sight that we don't need somebody constantly harping us to take initiative in our own relationship with Jesus. God's calling me to be diligent in the pursuit of my own relationship with Christ. And the reason that he's calling us to this is because he says, listen, I could see it in my presence, but all the more in my absence. Don't rely on somebody else to be the one that's strengthening your faith. Don't expect somebody else to constantly be driving your salvation. What he's talking about here, he's not talking about workspace salvation. He's saying you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Pray that you would have a heart for him. See his grace that you would stand in awe. When something is beautiful before you, when there's beauty and majesty, it's why everybody goes to Yosemite every year. Our national parks are full in the summertime. Yosemite and Yellowstone alone have to take reservations now. Who would ever thought of that? But why? Because people want to see beauty. They're drawn to beauty. If all we see is Jesus as a dutiful God who we're constantly trying to please, who can never really be fully satisfied, we will see our relationship with him as nothing more than a chore. We'll see him as one who has to be checked off a box. But if we can stand in awe of his beauty and of his goodness, it's no longer of, oh, I got it, I got it, okay, I have to go read the Bible today. It's, man, I get to read the Bible today. I get to read his word, his unique spoken word to me. I get to hear his spirit speak through the living word that both convicts my heart and corrects my heart and encourages my heart. That's what it means to be in awe, to pursue a relationship with him in awe. See, Paul's not talking about a workspace salvation. Rather, he's instructing believers to seek Christ and his sanctifying work in our lives. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. David Guzik points out that sometimes we show great concern for the work of God in others and not enough for his work in us. We should care about the souls of others, but this care must begin with our own soul. We cannot give to other people what we don't have ourselves. And that is true 
of our relationship with Christ. If Christ is just an afterthought in our life, we will never give him away freely. We will never witness of his truth in joy. The Greek word here for fear is phobos, and it literally means to have reverence. Trembling, on the other hand, is the word tromos, and it refers to a quaking anxiety. And that results from a feeling as if one can't meet the requirements to fulfill his or her own duty. So one, this fear, is a reverence. The other is a quaking anxiety, realizing that the things that God may ask me to do, I can't fulfill on my own. And so when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's the idea that, oh, I can see your beauty, God, but there's no way that I can do the things that you've asked me to do by myself. If we think that we can accomplish God's work apart from him, that trembling will be a quaking fear that will not lead us to come to him, but will lead us to seek self and in so doing compromise our witness before others. It'll rob us of joy. I know in my own life the way that I can tell when I'm doing it in myself is all of a sudden I'll go into a franticness in my own mind my own heart. God, I can't do this. I can't do it. And the Lord's like, yeah, you're right. You can't because you weren't meant to do it. But my spirit is. And so he says, for it is God who works in you. Be reminded, it's God who works in you. You see, the reverence that we have for the Lord arises from knowing who we are in comparison to God. And it should produce humility in us and a sense of awe that God is working in us. Our relationship with God should not be constantly being looked at as failure or success. It should be actually looked at in the context of pride and humility. Am I walking in pride today, or am I walking in humility? See, humility produces in us a sense of his awe because we see how little we are in the face of who he is and how limited we are in the face of who he is. When we come to Christ in humility and repent of sin and faithfully seek him, he completes his work in us. He aligns our will with his will and changes our hearts and actions. And that's why he says, for it is God's who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we come to Christ in humility, God actually aligns our will with his will. His will is actually the, the foremost. And all of a sudden, our desires become his desires. 1993, I was a freshman in college. My only desire at that point, in terms of career, and I'm not joking when I say this, was to never be a pastor. As the son of a pastor and as the grandson of a pastor, I knew what it meant to pastor and I wanted no part of it at all. At that point in my life, I knew baseball was not gonna be the answer and so I wanted to be a pilot. And if that wasn't gonna work out, I wanted to be a doctor. 
And every time I pursued one of those things, God kept changing it. He kept pushing me back, pushing me back, pushing me back. And I can remember going on runs. I know it doesn't look like it today, but I used to be a runner. And I would go on a run and just try to collect my thoughts. And I remember talking with my pastor on a run as we're running along. And I started laying out my plans for him. At the time, I was angry because all he did was chuckle. He laughed. He's like, oh, really? That was his response. Oh, really? Yep. He's like, what does God think of that? I'm like, I don't really know. I don't really care. But I did care. I knew enough that the most unsafe place was to be outside of the will of God. And I began praying, God, if these desires are not what you have for me, take them away. Not necessarily the desires, just take away the opportunity. And through a series of events, God slowly took those things away. And I was left with this sense that God was calling me into ministry and there was no way to escape it. What God did over the next two years as I submitted to him was he aligned his will or he aligned my will with his will. And no longer did I actually want those things and no longer did I long for those things, but I longed to be where God desired me to be. And I can tell you today that I have absolutely no regret in that. And I love what God has called me to. God changed my heart. Nothing of my own doing. I didn't try to convince myself more that I didn't like those things. On the contrary, God just moved those things to the back and brought what he had to me to the front. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, it was like, Lord, this is what you're calling me to. I will go gladly. You see, God is the one that changes our hearts and minds And then notice that this actually brings pleasure to him. That when he changes our will and aligns our will with his and works with us, within us, it brings pleasure to him. Isn't that awesome? How do you please God? You let God work within you. You submit to his will. You seek his righteousness. It brings pleasure. It brings pleasure. It's like a parent with a child. You ever have those moments that you're kind of dreading and then you get in the situation and you're like, I really never in the world imagined that God was going to show up in that way right now. And this little minute moment that I thought was going to actually take up too much time is the moment that I remember the most. Because it was the moment where the Lord showed up. And as a father, I found tremendous pleasure. God finds pleasure in us and being with us as he shapes our will and he shapes our hearts. Secondly, 
witnessing joy, this lifestyle of witnessing joy begins by imitating Christ and the witness of the apostles. So it first begins with our pursuit and then it begins with our imitation. Imitating Christ and the witness of the apostles. Verse 14 through 16 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Notice the first thing here that we imitate of Christ. It's his attitude. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The Greek word for grumbling is goganismus and it literally means to say something in a lone tone to mutter, to complain, or to express discontent. Are you a grumbler? Do you grumble? Grumbling will rob you of the joy of Jesus, and more than that, it will prevent people from seeing the joy that is in Jesus. You see, when we're constantly complaining, we fail to trust in the sovereignty of God and are actively ignoring God's command and fail to be content with the situation in which God's placed us. That's what grumbling is. We're, we're actually demonstrating a lack of contentment. And my hope this morning is, is that we see that grumbling and complaining actually is counter to the joy of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 9 through 10 shows us exactly what God thinks of grumbling. If you recall, Paul's actually talking to the Corinthians about the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness. And they had actually grumbled about their lack of provision. And it says there in verse 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. It was significant enough that he actually destroys the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness, because of their grumbling. Grumbling goes to the absolute opposite side of glorifying God. If you hear yourself grumbling, complaining, know that God is actually not being glorified. John Balford says one of the most common failures of Christians who have lost sight of the wonder of God's grace, they've lost sight of the awe, the goodness of God and the greatness of God, is the tendency to complain, often about simple things such as food and drink, as illustrated in the children of Israel in the wilderness. Such complaining, however, is a symptom of deep-seated spiritual problem, failure to really trust God and failure to be submissive to his providential provision, his purposed provision for you. Do you find contentment in the blessings with which God has given you? Or do you compare yourself to others and think others have it better than you? Are you discontent with the provision that God has provided? You see, Jesus wasn't a grumbler. He didn't grumble at those who were persecuting him. He didn't grumble at those who were afflicting him. His words were few, but they were mighty, were they not? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
He also says here, do all things without disputing. And that word there actually in Greece, in Greek, is a word that refers to the inward reasoning and questioning of the heart. It refers to a person who's always questioning, disagreeing, or who has, has to have a different opinion on things. It's impossible for disagreeable and quarrelsome people to experience and display the joy found in the Lord. It's impossible. Our culture is marked by complaining, by grumbling, and by disagreement. The church is not to be marked by that level of disagreement and grumbling. One of the saddest things over the last three years is to watch people leave the fellowship of believers because they disagree over how churches handle COVID. It's ridiculous. I'll say it right now. It's ridiculous. And no one should leave a church over disagreement about how COVID is handled. It shouldn't. And there will be things in the future. And the question is, can the church find its unity in Jesus? The most important thing is Christ. You have 12 disciples from all different backgrounds who I'm sure had very different political views. But they stayed together because the mission of Christ and Christ himself was far more important than the politics or the views of the day. We're coming up on an election in 2024 here. The church is going to be tested because the political situation right now in our nation is nasty. But we don't rise and fall based on our politics. It is Christ and Christ alone. That's what he's called us to. Stop grumbling, stop complaining, stop disputing. Be unified in Jesus. Look different than the world. We don't have to agree on external things to be unified in Christ and love one another well. We should show and be the example of people who have reasonable and real conversation about disagreement, knowing that we both love Jesus and are allowing the scripture and Christ to inform our decisions. And our goal is not to provoke people on situations and circumstances that are not eternal. Years ago, in youth ministry, I had a leader do a series on why God is not a Republican or a Democrat. (laughs) I'm not kidding you how many adults we had come to this thing. It was crazy. Because somehow our faith gets intermixed with politics, and the truth is our politics start informing our faith. Our faith should be informing our politics and how we deal with one another, not the other way around. And there are too many Christians that are allowing them to be defined by a political person rather than Jesus. If somebody says, oh, you're a Bidenite or you're a Trumpite, nope, say, I'm just, I'm a Christ follower. Stop letting the world define you and let Christ define you. 
Let him be the marker of who you follow. And let people see your joy. Don't get caught up in this garbage. We live in a twisted and crooked generation. That means the way they act is not the way that Christ acts. And their attitude is not rooted in Christ. Ours is supposed to be. Don't go looking for fights. Look for bridges for the gospel. Find ways to express the gospel. Second aspect then of that, first is the attitude that we imitate. The second is the character. It says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. The idea of being blameless here deals with the outward expression of our faith. The idea is that in terms of complaining and arguing, our unity and love for each other is not to be in question. The world is looking for any excuse. And this is why it's important to handle conflict biblically. Regardless of what we think the outcome's gonna be, we need to do it God's way and allow him to work it out. We don't assume that. Amongst one another, we work out conflict biblically. People see how conflict should be able to be carried out. In our homes, it should be the same. Husband and wife, one to another. Children to parent, one to another. Friend to friend, one to another. Coworker to coworker, coworker to boss, one to another. It means that we don't jump in on things that other people jump in on. There are some work cultures, and I've been in them, and you guys probably have too, where the culture is one of conflict and complaint, isn't it? It's easy to target the person most visible. It's easy to target the boss. It's easy to target a worker who's not doing what you think they ought to be doing. God's call is you still handle that conflict according to his word. You go to that person. You don't join in on the gossip. It doesn't mean that you have to be a, the one that is the gossip police. It means that instead of joining in, you stand by, you pray, you step out of the room. You don't engage in it when they ask your opinion. Yeah, you know, if I've got an issue with him, I actually need to go to him directly. It doesn't do any good for us to stand around and talk about it. Our character. See, Paul goes on and exhorts us to be, not, to be blameless, but to be innocent as well, pure. Our testimony should not be mixed with sinful practices. We need to be seeking righteousness in all things. And when we speak the truth, yet are unrepentant in areas of our life, the world will reject the message. Our lives need to match the testimony that we're declaring. Romans 16, 19 says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. See, being blameless and innocent is to be without blemish or above reproach as children of God. It is the reason that Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Years ago, so I was doing college ministry as a part of 
uh, youth ministry. I had a student that was super faithful in the ministry. And this guy, I believe, loved Jesus. I've watched him grow over the years, and he's actually now in full-time ministry. But at that time in his life, he was a relatively young believer. And he'd bring all these gals to church with him. And I'm talking a lot of gals that he'd bring to church with him. And then they weren't there afterwards. Like, they were gone within a matter of a week or two. And I remember that I just needed to kind of go and find. I had a hunch that something was going on. And I said, hey, man, I got a question for you. Are you sleeping with these gals? He goes, yeah, I sleep with them, and then I usually invite them to church. And inside of me, everything inside of me was like, ah, oh, man. Do you understand what's happening here? Like you're testifying to the righteousness of God and the goodness of God. And your own life isn't matching up to the testimony that you had. And what I realized was there were two things at work. One, he was compromising his testimony, right? The testimony that he was saying he lived by was clearly not being lived by. But the other part of it was that he needed to be discipled. He needed God to work on the character of his own life. And he needed to be instructed of what it really meant to submit to Jesus. And it was a wonderful reminder that God works within our character. And the easy thing would have been to do would have been to say, hey, go away. But what happened was watching him be discipled in that process, confronted in his sin, discipled and trained up, and watch him go into full-time ministry as God changed his heart and grew him in Jesus. And 10 years later, feeling the call to ministry and going into ministry. You see, all of a sudden his witness changed. His witness changed. We're not going to be effective if we're open about sin and continuing to try to get people to come along to this gospel. Our lives need to testify to the same truth that our words do. And that brings us then to the testimony. The attitude, the character, and the testimony that we're to imitate. Notice Paul's words. He says, holding fast the word of life. Our lives are to testify to the truth of the gospel, both in our attitude and character, as well as our verbal proclamation. The expression of our faith cannot only be in the way we live, but must be told. We must give the reason for why we live the way that we do. We're to stand on the truth and express our beliefs without being ashamed. Too many people spend their lives hoping that their attitude and character will be enough to transform another person's life. But Jesus almost always shared the message of the Messiah himself. Sometimes the excuse goes like this. I'm not gifted as an evangelist. That's not my spiritual gift. Yeah, I don't really think God calls me to evangelism because if he did, he'd make it easier. Even those with the gift of evangelism 
experience fear. But his call for every single believer is to go make disciples. Eungelion, to evangelize. That's the Greek word. To evangelize. None of us get a pass. And you have been planted in a crooked and twisted culture to be light. That's the blessing. God has chosen to plant you there. So are you intentionally praying for opportunities to share your faith and action and word? Or do you hope that God uses someone else? I'll share it with you guys. I've been praying for some doctors in my life. And one of the prayers about that that I find myself praying is, God, please don't let me get sick again to go have to share my faith. It's real. But I end that prayer truly with, not my will, your will, Lord. And it scares me. It scares me. My hope is that God will bring them to Jesus where it can just be by our regular doctor's appointments. My hope is that it doesn't require, and I'm sharing my soul with you guys here, my hope is it does not require me to be ill again. But at the end of the day, my desire is that they know Christ. Not my will, but your will be done. Consider the gift card that you handed out on Christmas Eve that we handed out. Have you done that yet? We shared that if you received the gift card and you needed that gift card, you needed it for usage, there's a need in your household, we want you to keep that and use it. But for others who didn't need it, we weren't asking you to give it to a person in need. We're asking you to give it as a bridge for the gospel, to simply say to someone, they might be in need, but to somebody, hey, I want you to know and experience the love of Jesus. I'm praying for you today. And my desire is that God has given me the greatest gift in Jesus. And my hope is that you might know that gift as well. It doesn't have to be said like that. But that's the desire is to use that card as a bridge. Ask yourself in all honesty. Now, I haven't talked to anyone about how they've used this gift card. But I want you to honestly assess yourself. Did you give it to the person who is easiest? Or did you prayerfully and thoughtfully use it as a bridge to express Christ's love to someone in need of him? See, we sometimes don't even see our immediate fears, do we? They pop up, they rise up. We see our evangelism and our witness as an event, not as a lifestyle, not something to be carried on. We just kind of hope it gets over quickly and we hope the pain is minimal. Do you see how our lifestyle is different than event? A lifestyle of being a witness is different than a witnessing event. Toby's going on this missions trip. I would encourage you, prayerfully consider whether you support her. In the bulletin, there's a QR code. 
If you'd like to pay through the internet, you can actually hit that QR code or hit the link. It'll take you there and you can donate to her. If you want to mail a check, you can actually look there. There's also an address to mail a check on her behalf. You can do that too. I want to encourage you to consider helping her be a witness to other people and not see it as a burden but as a joy that you get to participate in the ministry of Christ. And then finally, this lifestyle witness of joy begins both with this pursuit of Christ, the imitation of Christ, and then embracing and living in the fullness of your faith. Embracing and living in the fullness of your faith. Paul allowed God to use him so that others might experience the joy and fullness of Christ's salvation. And it's clear that we can witness without necessarily being a servant. And so God is calling us to be his faithful servants, to live out a lifestyle of witness. What does it mean to live in the fullness? It means this, that you embrace the good with the bad. If you are going to embrace the blessing of the Lord, you must embrace suffering with the Lord. Suffering is one of the ways in which God allows us to be used for his kingdom and for his glory to be seen. It's such a contrast to the culture who suffers and exclaims and cries out, going, there is no hope, there is no good. Suffering is an opportunity to experience joy and peace and express that when all is lost. F.B. Meyer says it this way, it is, however, certain that before any service that we do to God or man is likely to be of lasting and permanent benefit, it must be saturated with our heart's blood. That which costs us nothing will not benefit others. If there is no expenditure of tears and prayer, if that love of which the apostle speaks in another place, which costs is wanting, we may speak with the tongues of men and angels, may know all mysteries and all knowledge, may bestow all our goods to feed the poor, but it will profit nothing. Faith in Christ requires sacrifice. And you must ask yourself, are you willing to surrender your will for God's will? Are you willing? This year, your faith has a cost and it is sacrifice. Are you willing to surrender your will for God's will? Luke 9, 23 said, and he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. John MacArthur says this, he says, what have you said no to in order to say yes to God's will? What have you said no to in order to say yes to God's kingdom? What have you said no to in order to say yes to God's church? That's the question. Paul lived a life of sacrificial joy, and I'm telling you, and I'll say it probably till I die someday, the reason we have such a discontent, unhappy society is because, and even among Christians, they are trying to find joy in possessions rather than in sacrifice where ultimate joy lies. And so they are chasing an illusion. Notice that the sacrifice is not begrudging, but one of rejoicing. Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also would, should be glad and rejoice with me. When you think about the witness, your witness, and the cost of your salvation, the suffering, do you bemoan it? Do you find yourself complaining and arguing when you're suffering? 
Do you feel entitled to give up on God's purposes and comfortable taking a break from God? Are you encouraging those in your sphere of relationship, including your family members, to serve God wholeheartedly at any cost? See, God actually desires that we rejoice in our suffering because as the one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, put it, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is in our suffering that Christ is most seen if we allow it to be seen. And it is why Colossians 1, 24 through 26 says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. My hope this morning is this, that the mystery of God the hope of Christ, the joy of the Lord has been revealed to you and that you rejoice in it. May it be that we are witnessing joy, that we ourselves testify to the truth of Jesus, both as a witness in our attitudes and actions, but more importantly in our joy that the joy is what drives our attitude and actions. The joy of the Lord is what continues to draw us back to Jesus over and over and over again. And may it be the thing that draws people to Jesus over and over and over again. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for loving us well. You are good, Lord, and you are faithful. And may it be, Lord, that we cling to you this morning in your hope and in your joy. May we rejoice now and may we be your witnesses to a world in desperate need of your gospel. And we ask this in your name, amen.